So this morning we are transitioning. We are moving from the book of Philippians, which is a very encouraging book, a book filled with a lot of reminders of rejoicing and finding joy and and celebrating what God has done, what God is continuing to do. And there's this progression of of the gospel growing and advancing. And and this week we start a new series. I'm swinging the pendulum, if you will, to the other end. So we'll get in my first couple months here the encouragement and now the uh, not so encouraging part. No, there's 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 beauty and and truth and hope in this, and that's that's the desire to do this. When I was thinking about what to preach through next, and I said I was going to go through the book of Micah with some folks, everybody said I've never heard a pastor preach through this book, and I said exactly. <laughs> the reality is the God who is to be rejoiced in, in the book of Philippians, is the same God who is to be rejoiced in, in the book of Micah. He is the same God. The God of the Old Testament is the same of the New Testament. I know there are people out there right now thinking, okay, we're going to the Old Testament. We're going to prophetic book. Those are just full of just downers. Those are bummers. They're, they're not very fun to go through. Or maybe some of you are thinking, we're Christians, we're new covenant believers, that's old covenant stuff, why are you going there? Because our God is immutable, that's why. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God does not change. Now this morning I got a lot of kind of to cover here as a as an introduction to this book and Micah is is a minor prophet and by minor it doesn't mean that what he has to say is minor or less important or less significant it just means he wrote less than some of the others in fact he was a contemporary to the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah who is considered one of the major prophets actually credits Micah with persuading the king of Israel at that time, Hezekiah, to repent and seek the Lord. So if you were Micah, maybe you would walk away and say, what do you got, Isaiah? What do you got? (laughs) Micah is calling the people of Judah to renew the reliance on God. Their confidence and hope had strayed. The powerful and the wealthy were taking advantage of those of the lower class. The faith had turned to this rote motion instead of a heart-filled call and dependence on the Lord. Sin was praised. Justice was ignored. Idolatry was seducing people away from the Lord. And I pray as we go through this series, you will see... That Micah is calling the people to obedience, which is the same call we need to hear even now in this day. So let's pray and then we'll dive into our text. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. It is an unchangeable thing. It is useful and is good. It is given to us as a gift so that we would see who you are, but also so that we would see where we need more of you in our life. Use your words this morning to train us, to equip us, to rebuke us if need be. Because above all things, Lord, we want 
to be about your glory. We want to be ones who live in a way that make your name famous. And we do that by showing our dependence on you above everything else. You are the rock on which we want to stand. Everything else is shaking. Everything else is momentary, but you remain the same. And it is good for us to follow after you. And I pray that you would help us to be challenged this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you to open to Micah chapter 1. Micah chapter 1, I'm going to start with reading verses 1 through 7. Stop, talk about some things, then we'll move through the rest of it. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you people, all of you, pay attention, O earth, And all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold the Lord is coming out of his place. And he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay to waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to a fee of a prostitute they shall return. So a little more background here. Starting with Abraham in the book of Genesis, God calls out Abraham and establishes a covenant with him saying, from you a great nation will come and that nation will be a blessing to the people of all the world. And that covenant grows more with the addition of the Sinai covenant or the Mosaic covenant, which ushers in the law or the commandments. But in these covenants, what you see is God is promising to provide for his people. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will provide for you spiritually and physically. But these covenants come with expectations. Probably the most familiar are the Ten Commandments. Where God lays out, you will honor me as your God. And here's how you are to honor me as your God as you interact with other people. And because God is good and desires to care for and and shepherd his people's sin, the thing that draws us away from God should be rebuked so as to steer us back into covenant, union. Because to break covenant is to put ourselves outside of the protection of God. 
Yet the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He raises up prophets to call out to the people, stop. You're running to danger. You're running towards death. Come back to the Lord. He is gracious and forgiving. In fact, prophetic judgment is one of the primary or main themes of all of Scripture. These first few verses here focus on what is called Israel. And by Israel at that time, he's talking about the northern kingdoms, right? God establishes Israel. Israel comes into the promised land. They want a king. God says, fine, I will give you one. Solomon, all the 12 tribes come under his reign. Solomon disobeys what God has called. God gives the kingdom over to the line of David, King David. He establishes a covenant with him. David's son Solomon continues the reign, but after Solomon, the kingdom divides. Ten tribes form the northern kingdom. And eventually they establish Samaria as their home and they built this beautiful citadel up there, this beautiful city built with decorative stones. It's known for having lavish parties and people living in very ornate and and lavish ways, but they also establish cultic practices. They water down the the faith that God had given them with the, the culture and the world around them. And they set up idols and they set up other things that are actually offenses to the Lord God. There's spiritual decay, but that's not the only issue. At the same time as Micah is writing these things or heralding these things, Assyria is the growing superpower, and it's starting to press in on Israel, and they're starting to have fearful thoughts of what this country, this nation might do, and instead of going to the Lord, they seek man's wisdom. They trust in man's strength. It seems that reformation and renewal can always be kicked down the road a little bit further. All that Micah talks about here in verses 6 and 7 come to fruition in 722 BC when Sargon II finishes the work of his father in conquering the kingdom of Israel. And he pulls down the capital city of Samaria. The stones pour down the hillside and it becomes a desolate place. What do we What do we do with this passage? What does this say? Or what does God have for us here? One of the things I see here in this text, and I don't want us to run away from it. I want us to look at it and and feel the weight here for a moment is that the long-suffering God will execute his judgment. The long-suffering God will execute his judgment. In verses three and four, it displays God's sovereign power and authority over all things. Nothing will hinder him. I love it how it's being described. It's like these, the the, the mountains are being described almost like anthills. It's nothing for God to step and tread upon them. The very foundation of the world, the the mountains and the valley will melt away like like wax before the flame. When God comes to execute his justice Nothing will stop him. Nothing will hinder him from from accomplishing what he desires to accomplish. In verse 7, we read that the false gods will be shown as the impotent 
carved items that they truly are. They will be smashed to pieces and their temples will be raised to the ground. And here he's, he's talking about prostitution here. And, I, and there's a couple things here. I think in the Old Testament, you'll see that God often connects prostitution with idolatry. But in Israel, prostitution was part of the religious practice. And that's how they paid for the temple. That's how they made money. And what God is saying here is the fee that they gathered, the riches that they gathered through their false worship will actually be paid to another prostitute, the prostitutes of the cultic practice of, of the Assyrians. It's interesting that if you look at the division after the northern kingdom divides, you have the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. The northern kingdom has 19 kings. And if you read through the scriptures, none of them are good. They set up idolatry. They trust in their strength instead of the Lord. And so you have here this picture of, of, of moral decay and, and spiritual decay. And those are the real problems. The real problem isn't Assyria knocking on the door. The real problem is your heart has wandered from the Lord. It's kind of funny if you really think about it. Look at the culture we live in today. Almost three millennia later. It's pretty much the same, isn't it? So please don't think the Old Testament's irrelevant. Because it has the word old. The New Testament's pretty old too, right? It's, it's still relevant to us. There's, there's words of caution for these, and it's not just found in the Old Testament. Keep your finger here in Malachi, but I want you to flip over to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what Paul says here. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? If you're doing evil, judgment will come. Don't think because you're in this church. Don't think because you claim to be a Christian that if, if, if you're going to judge people out there, but you still do it with your own life, that judgment is somehow removed. God is not a God who changes. In fact, the prophet Amos in chapter 5 reminds us that judgment will roll down like water and righteousness and ever-flowing stream, which will wipe clear injustice, evildoers, and rebel covenant breakers. One day, the holy, holy, holy God will execute his holy, holy, holy righteous judgment. And he has to, because if he doesn't, he is not good and he is not just. You can almost imagine if you were the people of Judah, you already have a negative view of the people of the northern kingdom. And so as Micah starts to herald his word given to him by God, and they're reading through these verses, they're probably thinking, yes, 
finally, those people up there are getting what they deserve. Those evil covenant breakers, those people who corrupt the word of God, those people who have abandoned the worship of God at his holy temple, on his holy mound, in his holy city of Jerusalem, and set up this cheap facade up there in Samaria. Finally, here's where it gets good. Because Mike is not done talking. Take a look here at verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentations like the jackal and mourn like the ostriches. And just by mourning, please don't think ostrich putting their head in their ground. I think they don't actually do that. What he's talking about is, and you can find this online, ostriches make this horrible noise when they're in danger. And it's, that's what he's talking about. I, I'm going to scream out in this horrible noise. Why? For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gates of my people to Jerusalem. All that stuff that's happening in the northern kingdom, Micah's saying is, it's, it's here. It's with our people. Verse 10, tell it not to Gath. Weep not at all. Beth Lephra, roll yourself in the dust. Pass on your ways, the inhabitants of Sapphire, in nakedness and shame to the inhabitants of Zayanah. Do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Azel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds of the chariots, you inhabitants of Lahaish. It is the beginning of sin to the daughters of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresh Gath. And the house of Azeb shall be deceitful things to the king of Israel. I will bring again, excuse me, I will again bring a conqueror to you, the inhabitants of, Ma- of Marishath. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald. Cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. We, we miss some of the wordplay in, in verses 10 through 15. There's, in, in, in the Hebrew, there's a wordplay between the cities, the, this, the name of the city. Either there's a rhyme or the city means this. And what's being told to them is the opposite of the name of the meaning. But all of those cities are in Judah. The so-called, I'll put this in quotes, faithful ones, the people of Judah... The ones who have a king of the line of David sitting on the throne. The people who have their capital of Jerusalem, which houses God's holy temple, the place where he dwells. Surely God will not discipline us. But Micah says, that's not true. And so I pray that we here would not be so naive as the people of Judah. Church, we must check our own heart and our own motives. 
We have to look at our own heart, our own motives. The disease of sinful rebellion isn't just happening out there in the world. The disease of sinful rebellion is in all of us because all of us are broken. All of us are sinners. And by our natural inclination, we want to run. We want to run away from God. We don't want to trust him. We think we have a a better idea, but we look out there and we think those people, those are the evil people. It's so easy to look at the world that way, isn't it? We're just like the people of Judah and we look up at the northern kingdom or we look at the world around us and we say, those people deserve fill in the blank. Not us. I mean, I come to church every Sunday. But those people, not me. My grandfather was a missionary. But those people, not, you see, We begin to justify our sin just like the way the people of Judah did. We're Jerusalem. We're the holy city. We have the temple of God in our backyard. Why would he destroy us? I pray that we would not presume on the faithful obedience of those who have come before us. We, the church today, should be grateful for the the godly men and women who had trucked through the difficulty, remaining faithful, trying to continue to to bring forth the gospel message so that it would go out to generation to generation. But let's not rest on what they have done. Let's check our own hearts. I think many of us today might find ourselves in the category of what God describes as people who honor me with their lips, but yet their heart are far from me. Why are we so good at calling out sin in the world out there while turning a blind eye to the sin in here? And more importantly, to the sin in here. Why do we do that? Micah's words are meant to be a clarion call. Check yourself What is your heart really about? Christian, are you about the gospel? Are you about making much of the name of God and and exalting the name of Christ above every name so that people would see the glory and the goodness of salvation found in him that they would fall on their knees and say, I have sinned. I am a rebel. How might I be saved? It's really hard when the church, it's so hard to differentiate the church from the world. We live so much like it. We have the same values. We pursue the same things. Our, our, our sexual morality looks just like the world's. We, we look at our lives and there's no different. We want all the same things. The only difference is, is that sometimes we do something that they don't. Mammon or materialism, sex, Addiction, all the false gods that were active in Micah's day are still active today. Yeah, we don't bow to a carved image. We just bow to granite countertops, redone bathrooms, sports cars, or the pick on the people who texted me the other day, ski nautiques. Some of you still don't know what that is, and that's okay. 
it's my God, it's my idol, right? It's not yours, you have yours. Maybe your favorite sports team. I don't know how many of you spent all day yesterday watching a bunch of undergrads throw around a ball inflated with air that means absolutely nothing to the kingdom. We all have our gods and we all look out there, but we don't wanna look in here. But Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom to devour. Are we being eaten from the inside? The problem isn't out there. I need to say this very clearly. I am not saying that we, the church, shouldn't be aware of, of the sin and the issues out there and, and shouldn't be talking about, I mean, we have the class talking about some of the, the cultural issues and, and, and how to address that from a biblical point of view, but let's not be only focused out there. We need to worry about our own house, our own home, our own heart. Are we in order? Are we seeking kingdom first and his righteousness or are we pursuing something else take a look here at first peter chapter four first peter chapter four verse 17 says this to the church for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of god and if it begins with us what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? There will be judgment on us, the household of God. Now, if, if you're truly saved, if you truly have put your faith in Christ, if you truly are repenting and believing in him, judgment's still there. But praise God, the condemnation has been removed. But don't think it's a get out of hell free card and now you can do whatever you want to do and say, there's no judgment on my head. Judgment is still there. We are not immune to sin the second we believe in the Lord. Check your heart. What are your motives? What are you pursuing? What are the things you seek after? Why does the gospel that often is heralded from the churches of America sound so much like the gospel heralded by the world? What are you living for? Paul writes to the Corinthians in his first letter to that church. In chapter 3, he says, all of us, our lives will be put to the test by the fire and all the things of wood and, and hay will be burnt away. And the only things that will be remain are the precious stones of the gospel. What are you building your life on? So here's the good news. You might say, I don't see any good news here, pastor. I think you're looking at a different Bible or a different passage. Where's the hope? And I want to say, you missed it. Because it's right at the beginning. Do you see it? I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 2. Hope starts right in verse 2. It's right there. See, we've got a capital letter. Here. 
here. The word here is full of hope. Micah's saying to all the people, gathered all the people, all you people. He's not just talking to Israel. He's not just talking to Judah. He says, all you people, oh, the earth, he writes, hear, hear what? Hear what I'm about to say. Don't be lulled into a false confidence. Don't be thinking everything's fine. Hear. You might say, why is that good news? Because all of Micah's letter is a call to hear so that you might repent. Christian, hear and repent. Hear and repent. Hear what's happening. Hear the warning. Hear the caution so that you would lament over your sin and be driven to repent. Micah delivers this fearful and scary message of God's impending divine wrath coming upon covenant breakers, which all of us are, but there's hope if you would just hear. Micah isn't just speaking about future things. His words are warning. It's almost as if Micah is saying, hear, because if you don't, here's what will happen. So listen. It's like a parent says, if you keep doing this, here's the consequence. They're trying to say, I'm I'm warning you. I love you. I'm trying to caution you from going down that path that's going to end up in destruction. Here, if you turn now, if you would repent, that's what it means to turn away from these things. It can be changed. Micah wants us to hear and repent. He doesn't want us to feel sorry. I'm sorry that the word sorry is actually not in the Bible. A little side note here. This is what I would say to my kids when I was raising them. You say sorry when you accidentally bump into someone when you're walking out of a crowded store. Oh, sorry, excuse me. But when you willfully sin against your sibling, you don't say sorry. You go seeking forgiveness because you've wronged them. God is not asking us to say, sorry, God. He's asking us to lament and be broken over our sin in such a way that we say, I need to reconcile with you. And we do that by coming through Christ again and again. Worldly grief, saying sorry, only produces death. Micah wants us to have a godly grief that that makes us lament over our sins. We're heartbroken that we actually want to to go back and say, I'm sorry, God, that I am broken, but sorry isn't enough. Please forgive me. I've willfully rebelled against you. I'm pursuing the wrong things. My motives were wrong. My heart is corrupted. Forgive me, a sinner. Listen to the words of Jesus from chapter 5 of John's gospel, verse 24. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. 
What's the word that, that, that Jesus wants us to hear? The word that Jesus wants us to hear is that he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him because he was the perfect atoning death for our sins. God doesn't wipe sin away. He puts it on Christ. God doesn't pretend like your sin didn't happen. He pours it on Jesus. So that those of us who fall under the name of Christ are protected from the wrath, the righteous wrath of God. I know that there's somebody here who is hearing these words and thinking, I'm an evil, sinful covenant breaker. I just want to tell you that Christ is sufficient to cover all sins. There's no other name under heaven or earth that any can be saved. When we seek forgiveness, we don't say, forgive me, Lord. Look at all the good things I've done. Forgive me, Lord. From this day forward, I will do these things for your name. We seek forgiveness pleading the name of Christ and say, forgive me, Lord, because of what Christ has done. Have you heard? Are you listening? The gospel's here. I, I know I shouldn't do this because it kind of already wrecks the end. But if you have your Bible, flip over to Micah 7. Look at the very end of Micah 7. Look what Jesus, excuse me. I see I already wrecked it for you. Look at what, look what Micah says in verse 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. God has done that and he has done it through Christ. Doesn't matter how big your iniquity is. Doesn't matter how sinful you have been. All of us, all of us, all of us are covenant breakers and all of us come again and again to Christ. And if you would come humbly, he will pardon your iniquities. He will pass over your transgressions. Our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He keeps loves from generation to generation, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin. Have you heard the warning so that you would run to the one who can actually save you? Micah's words continue to speak to us today. Church, there is a holy God out there, a righteous God who must institute his judgment because if he holds back his judgment forever, he is not righteous, he is not good, and he is not just. Hear the words of, of Micah. Don't just think sin is out there. We all have sin. We're all covenant breakers. We all need the forgiveness of God. Hear the warning. But also hear the good news of Christ Jesus and repent. Lament over your sin and repent today. Don't put it off. 
Do it today. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. We sin tomorrow, we repent and believe tomorrow. We sin again and we repent again and we turn again and again. Jesus is the only hope for covenant breakers like me and like you. He is our hope and our salvation. We, rebels of God, need to repent and believe in the only truly perfect one, the only one who never broke covenant, the one who was obedient in all things, because when we do, we are restored back to God. Praise the name of Christ, the one who takes covenant breakers and counts us as righteous because his righteousness is poured out upon us. We all find ourselves like Judah. We all find ourselves in need of a savior. And he has come. May we trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. You have been so good. You think of us. You've considered us in our sinful state, in our rebellion, as we're running away, seeking to establish ourselves as king, seeking after false gods that truly actually enchain us instead of giving us the freedom they promise pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to see our sin and that we would lament over it, but not just sorrow in it, but be driven instead to godly grief that actually produces a repentance that turns from these false things instead says, I want you, the only thing that satisfies. I want you the thing that is the joy of our life. I want you because your glory is so awesome. Forgive us, Lord. We come humbly pleading not our works. It isn't because we go to church all the time. It isn't because we give money regularly to the offerings. It isn't because we were baptized. It isn't because of any of these things. The only thing we plead is the blood of Christ. can wash away the sins of the world nothing but his beautiful blood I pray Lord help us to check our hearts and to joyfully run back into your arms because you are a father who accepts rebel children and counts our rebellion not against us but instead says enter into your rest Pray with grateful hearts in the name of Jesus, because it's only by his name any of that is actually true. Amen.